All right, we are live with Home Lab Show, episode 19, and we're going to be bringing you some command line help. And yep. this is, me and G were tossing this around and said, you know what, this is just something that's really needed. You know, the common commands that we type in to help sort out a problem. Uh, Jay's covered this before on his channel with awesome Linux tools. So we just call them awesome command line tools. And these are th things that kind of will help you along your journey because you're kind of wondering how much space is on the hard drive? What's the command for that? And, or each partition or however you have it configured. But uh, so that's what's going to cover in today's episode. And uh, let's have some fun with this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we want to first give a shout out to our sponsor, Linode. And uh, we've been using Linode to help deliver this show to you. So if you visited the homelab.show, downloaded this podcast, you have pulled it off a Linode server set up by Jay. He's very familiar with Linode. I, I, I've been around their service for a little while now, so I'm pretty familiar with it. And they keep, out, keep on coming out with new features, which is pretty cool, too. And they have all kinds of things like uh, one-click deployments, or you can just set up your own uh, Linux instance manually if you prefer that, or if that's the only way to do it for that app. Basically, whatever you could think of, you could create a Linode instance for that. They have uh, support for containers as well, object storage. They have uh, built-in domain management. So they have pretty much every tool you could ever want. Yeah, it's, it's a nice way if you want to test something out as much as we you know, encourage people to do everything and learn how to do it from the command line, build it up. Their app store is actually pretty cool. Uh, we were discussing yep. that just last night, how easy it is to go deploy something that you want to test. And it's yep. great. First, you want to know the end result. Is it a product I want? Because if you spend a lot of time learning it and you're like, well, in the end, it's not the thing I wanted to use or it doesn't fit my use case. Hey, at least with the you can just destroy it and start over again. And uh, Linode makes it really easy and we're going to make it easy for you. We have an offer code down below from Linode to get you some time on their servers to get started on there. It's a pain-free sign up. Uh, so if you're interested, go ahead and click the link below. It's in the show notes. And thank you for Linode for sponsoring this video. We or really podcast. podcast. Yeah. You keep saying <laughs> video too. every time. Yeah. It's, it's, video, video if you're works. watching. <laughs> yep, on the live stream. All right. Where do we start on this list of tools? And I realized, you know, as soon as the show started, I mentioned to Jay one minute ago, I said, there's at least one of them not on our list that we forgot, but we'll give yep. them a couple honorable mentions here is someone already in the comments said lolcat and Cowsay. They're not useful tools at all, but I, I will throw them out there as awesome tools. Probably it was the other one called toilet where it does a little ASCII stuff. <laughs> I think there's, there's a couple of them. They're off topic, but if you're not familiar with Cowsay, uh, it allows you to draw a little ASCII cow and the cow can say things. Um, I actually have a tutorial on my channel, oddly, including Cowsay, where I talk about how to pipe things through the command line. And piping is one of the you know functions used in Bash where you take the output and pipe it through to another system. And I think if you're not sure what to do, Cowsay is an easy example of how to do it. So it's not as much an awesome tool, but at least it gives you some entertainment if you are playing with some of these tools. The rest of the tools are more serious after this, though. <laughs> yeah, an honorable mention I'll give, and this isn't really a tool, but it's just an example of like you could do pretty much everything in the command line. Like somebody who had a lot of time on their hands decided to port Star Wars Episode Four to ASCII. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't know the command off the top of my head, but it's it, it, literally you could just Google it. Obviously, make sure it's a, a safe um, URL. The URL, I thought it included like blinking lights in the name, if I'm not mistaken. But it's literally Star Wars Episode Four in ASCII. And oh, I yeah. don't want to know how much time that would have taken to complete. 
Yeah, there's um, there's also one for DNS. It, uh, if you, it does a series of DNS queries, like through Trace, I think it's DNS lookups via Trace Route, and it will uh, kick out some fun ASCII on here. But all right, before we get too off topic, that's uh, <laughs> those are definitely there's a lot of fun. I, I'm I'm a big fan because of me being an old school computer person of ASCII art, so I, I have a soft spot in my heart for it. But um, let's get with the real tools that things real that need tools. to be done. Where do you want to start, yeah. Jay? So what I'm going to do is, is talk about two text editors. And as an aside, I set up a few short URLs for some of these because we have videos for some of these between Tom and I, or maybe we don't and we should, which is where you guys can come in and let us know if we um, if there's something you want us to cover in a future episode of this podcast, because some of the things we're going to mention might actually um, get you guys thinking. And if you want to see a video on something or an episode of something we didn't already do, then um, pretty much anything we mentioned here is fair game. But the short URLs will help you find some of these. So the first category is um, a category of text editors. I have two. You're probably going to think that I'm going to mention Vim and Nano. If you thought about Vim, you're right. Nano, it can get an honorable mention. I think it's fine. Um, you know, it's really simple. But I'm going to give you guys another text editor in its place called Micro which is really cool. You can essentially just um, download it. You can even curl it, although I don't really like curling things. I don't like that being a habit. But it's a very easy to use text editor, maybe a little bit more advanced than Nano, and it could do some of the things that Vim can do. But Micro is a really good text editor to start out with if you um, are just kind of getting um, your feel for the command line. And I have a video on my channel um, for those listening, all you have to do is, and this is very easy syntax, it's linux.video. That's the domain. And in this case, it's linux.video slash micro. So that should be very easy for someone to know. We'll have it in the yeah. show notes as well if you want to see a video on that. Now, Vim is my favorite text editor personally. Um, I think early in, in my Linux career, I was kind of oppositional towards Vim because I'm like, you know, it's just too complicated. I could just open up Nano and it's quicker. But once I saw some colleagues and what they were, you know, what they were able to do with it, it actually wasn't as hard as I thought it was. And you don't really have to learn everything about Vim. You could just focus on the things that you want to use, like copy and paste. Maybe that's all you really care about, opening files, saving files. And I have a video for that at linux.video slash Vim. And that gets you to a playlist of a bunch of videos there. I don't know how many, like five or six or something like that. That'll teach you Vim if you don't already know it. But Vim, and like Tom and I were actually discussing before the show, Vim is everywhere. So it's one of those things that um, even if you are on a server and the package base is just totally borked and you can't install anything, chances are Vim is already there. So you could just simply go into Vim. And if you if you know the basics, at least, then you're in really good shape. And years and years ago, when I started in tech, uh, it was just Vi, not Vim, not the enhanced one. But their commands are close enough that you can figure it out. Um, mm -hmm. It's when I had to deal with and uh, way past its end of life, people still had an HPUX and some old AIX servers that I used to administer starting in the 90s. But they were still in use in the 2000s. But that was the only editor available on those systems. And it's why it's one of the reasons it's not. It is a learning challenge, but there's also some different games you can play with Vim. Literally, if you type in like the Vim game, there's someone who teaches you some of the commands with the game. So there's yep. there's ways to make your life a little bit easier when it comes to learning it. But I, I do recommend it. And, it. and if you get really extensive in it, um, there's one of the reasons Vim has survived so long uh, and being one of the really 
among the oldest tools in the Linux and Unix world uh, is the modern versions allow a lot of plugins. So if you're doing different types of code lookup and things like that, it becomes a very enhanced editor for things. So I really encourage people to learn that um, and watch these tutorials on it. We're not going to probably do an episode on Vim because uh, an episode of Vim, it's very visual. So watch these videos on it for help on that. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agreed. And, and you know, the, the thing to keep in mind throughout all of this, because I get a lot of people ask me, how do I how do I memorize all of that? And it could, it's not just about them, whatever it happens to be, what the subject is. Just memorize the things you care about. You don't have to know all of them. If you go in thinking you're going to learn every aspect of them, you're going to be defeated because there's many more features there than any human being will ever be able to memorize. So just <laughs> memorize true. things that matter to you. Copy, paste, mm-hmm. like I mentioned, opening, saving files, you're good. And then if you get into plugins, that's fine. But Yep. So those are text editors. Uh, Vim and Micro are the two that I listed here. And Nano gets an honorable mention because that um, I have run it into exists. a few situations. Yeah, it exists. I um, never into, into a few situations where I can't remember what distro it was. Vim was not there. I'm like, whoa, but Nano was. So it could be one of those things, too. It could be a runner up. The next category is resource monitoring, general resource monitoring, things like CPU, RAM and such. And the first pick that I have here is HTOP. Now, I don't have a dedicated video on that. I've covered HTOP in several different individual series on Linux distributions. It's usually something I show in quite a few videos. So I'm not really sure which one to point you to, but HTOP, it has replaced TOP for me. TOP is the, it's been the go-to command basically to see what your resource utilization is. It's been the default for probably decades or I don't know how many years now. And HTOP, in my opinion, is just one of those things that I install immediately because it just makes it so easy to see what um, where you know where your CPU is going, what's saturating all your RAM, things like that. Um, you can kill processes as well. So if something's totally pegging your CPU, you can, um, in the case of a server, just SSH in, kill the process if you have to. So HTOP is really easy to use. You can customize it. So um, in my opinion, that's the number one pick. For that. Yeah. Now, uh, top is pretty cool, and it was back to HP UX and those. It's been around for a long time, uh, but HTOP. One of the things that not everybody realizes: one, there's a search function, there's an expand function, so you can expand what command, so you can see the whole command line. Uh, also, I didn't realize until sometime long after I started using HTOP, there's mouse wheel support. So if you need to scroll through things, uh, bring your mouse over mm-hmm. to and you can scroll around with the mouse inside of HTOP to find different processes. But being able to search and send the kill commands to kill or look at different processes, uh, HTOP's not just a replacement, but an enhancement over top, especially when you're just trying to hunt down a process in there, filtering for a specific process. And when you're doing monitoring, you're just trying to figure out kind of like, Jason, what what is really hogging the resources? Uh, it's very helpful. It's also really cool, as me and Jay have sometimes screenshotted, when we're rendering something and we get to see all the cores in use, um, that becomes kind of fun. <laughs> or in my case, a single process using like nearly, if not 50 gigabytes of RAM. And no, I'm not exaggerating. Some of my render, actually, when I'm not even rendering, some of my um, Caden live editing sessions on YouTube has, have literally gotten to 50 gigs of RAM usage, and it's insane. So yeah. it's like you can see that right there. Um, and just like Tom mentioned, when you're rendering a video, you just see all the cores going nuts. It's just fun. Yep. Another one. Oh, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I just want to say, let's talk about, uh, do you do you have a pronunciation for it or is it just BP 
Y top. I think it's B Pi top because B it's pi written top. in Python. <clears throat> Got so it's it. Top written in Python, um, first initial B. So B P Y T O P. I do have a video on this. So Linux.video slash B Pi top. And I kind of put this right up there with HTOP. It, it's almost like a more modern, actually, HTOP is fairly modern itself. It's just so prettier. It's the it's Python prettier. <laughs> it's got a little splash screen that comes up. You can disable that. And I, I make that um, available on all of my systems. HTOP as well. I have both. Um, HTOP is still muscle memory. Even though I prefer BPyTop, I, I type HTOP so habitually that um, you know it's still a thing there. So I, I do recommend at least looking at BPyTop. I have a video on that. I might actually have compared it to HTOP in the video. I don't remember because when I create a video, I completely forget everything about that video after I upload it. <laughs> so um, check the video on that. You might see HTOP making an appearance there too. So HTOP and BPytop. And we also have, I think this might've been yours possibly, Wavemon. Yeah, now I've done a video on Wavemon and this goes back into the networking side of things. So we have it, it it's, is it a resource monitor? Is it a network monitor? It depends oh, on yeah. what you consider an SSID. So when you're looking at wireless networks and granted that falls in the category of networking, but you kind of want to monitor your signal strength and connection to that wireless network. And all the tools that I've seen in the UI for Linux are eh, and Windows is even worse, but Wavemon, on the other hand, is awesome and gives you a lot of great detail, especially when you, I do a lot of testing, as I do when we're testing Wi-Fi devices here. One of the things you do, like roaming is an easy example. You want to know when you, on that particular device, roam to the next device when you're wandering around. You want to watch that transaction. How did it work? One of the cool things Wavemon will do, because it always has the Mac displayed within there, you can actually watch as you're connecting to the same SSID with a different Mac, which means you've roamed to another device. And it just gives you some good granular data uh, for signal strength, interference, retries. Retries are one of the things you're trying to watch. And it just puts it all on the screen, all through the command line. One of the reasons I like through a, you know, NCURSE's command line is because compared to a UI, one, it's just kind of concise and easy to read. Also, it works over SSH. So if you have a device, let's say even a Raspberry Pi, and you connected a Wi-Fi adapter to it or using the Wi-Fi adapter within a Raspberry Pi, and you wanted to monitor a remote site and just see if there's something causing problems on wireless drops, being able to quickly SSH into that device and have that on the screen, cool, I have the stats, I have the information, I can see if there's something or some type of retries going on. And especially when you're tracking an intermittent connection connection problem when you can't be on site all the time, but you can leave something on site that you can remote into and see what its wireless is. Uh, Wavemon's been kind of an invaluable tool for that. I don't think it really has an easy uh, parity with anything else. I don't know, like it, I don't even know if it has a close second in terms of uh, all the info it displays, but it's one of those things, ain't broke, don't fix it. It's AppKit install Wavemon on Debian-based distributions. And of course it's supported outside of Debian, whatever distribution uh, probably has it in there. Yeah, I probably should have put that in the networking section. But yeah, we yeah. but it's a it's a great tool. I, I don't think I knew about this one. So some of these that Tom brought up in our pre-show, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna be adding these to my Ansible, make sure all of my systems have it. I think that's one that's at least in my systems with Wi-Fi, that one's gonna be on there for sure. The next category is resource monitoring specific to disks, like storage, how much, you know, what's eating up all your space, things like that. Now the first thing is easy. I think most people know this one, but if you, you're super new to Linux, you, you probably don't then. 
uh, df-h. That's, that's the command, and that's built into, I think, every distribution I've ever used. So you shouldn't have to install anything. Dash H is for human readable. So you see megabytes, gigabytes, and things like that. It just makes it very easy to understand. Now, the downside there is um, you have to kind of, um, but there's also du-h as well. So df-h is going to show you like how much space you actually have free for, on your- Yeah, for each uh, mount point. For each mount point. But once you understand which mount point it is that's full, you can use du-h, disk usage, du-h in that directory and then you'll find out which directory is the largest one and you can drill down now the issue for that for me is that it's a little time consuming depending on how many directories deep the problem could be yes i like to use ncdu which stands for ncurses disk usage i believe and that is almost never installed by default on any linux distribution so what I tell everyone is make that one of the first things you install. And here's why. If your disk is 100% full, you're not going to be able to install NCDU because your disk is 100% full. So how right. do you install something when you have no space left? So um, <laughs> make sure you install it before it becomes a problem because running it after the fact, if, it, if it's full, is not easy to do. But NCDU allows you to traverse your file system. So it'll scan your file system. I use dash X as a argument there because that makes it so that it doesn't search for any like network storage devices that you might have mounted. So if you have like, you know, at a company, for example, a five terabyte mount that's mounted, but your problem is on the local file system, it's just gonna be a complete waste of your time to have it scan a network file system. So I use dash X unless I do want to scan that file system. So once yeah. it's done, you basically can just traverse the directory tree. It'll show you like which directory is using the most space and it orders by space from the most to the least. And then you could just um, press enter to select a folder. You just use the up and down arrow to select a folder. And then when you're inside a folder, you can actually, I forgot what it was, you can actually delete a file in there if you have to. So if you find a really large file, you really don't need it. In my case, one of my other companies, I don't know if I was in a good mood when I was working for this company this day, but um, somebody basically downloaded a bunch of stuff to the home directory and, and, and the home directory wasn't on a different partition. So the server was just out of space. So I went in that person's home, home directory. I just flat out deleted that folder. They're not even supposed to be putting anything in their home directories anyway on that server. And that, of course, um, cured the problem, just ran NCDU. I saw it was that person's home directory. I saw what folder it was. They just untarred something they, they downloaded from the internet that was really huge, like source code, I think it was, like a big blob of source code they just extracted. So NCDU for me is just indis indispensable. It's just great. Yeah, it's it, one of the problems that we've run into a lot is people set up servers and they may not put in a maintenance plan or a proper log rotation plan. And they don't take into consideration the fact that there is a finite amount of space on this particular server. And uh, that's actually a freaking problem solving is jumping right in. And those tools are like, it's crazy. It is for all the problems we solve. I got to say, I've solved that one a lot for people of like, you're just space. Like that's like, I can't get this thing to work or it's behaving yeah. improperly. Uh, if you're not familiar with one of the rules in the way Linux works, um, there's the 90 is 95% rules, probably what I'd call it. You can only get the drive 95% full for user operations. It forces the last 5% only available to root. So things running as root are still able to function, but anything running in user space 
uh, can stops at 95%. I believe that's still true in all modern distributions. Am I right, Jay? Um, well, I don't know because I haven't seen that happen ever. Um, so it might be whatever distribution you were using might have that. It sounds like a good rule to me. Yeah, um, it's, it, it stops non-root from writing, I believe. Maybe it's just something I had right. seen in a few of the servers, but it at least allowed me enough space to install something as root to start doing the other things. But it's oh. amazing how many times I have found, because the application was told to stop writing, basically, is why they, they just, oh, to, okay. to the user, the application stopped functioning. They don't know why. It's on Linux, so they contact support us and go, we don't know why this Linux server quit working. It seems to be right. booting, but it doesn't function. And what happens is the app doesn't have any space to write to the drive. So, right. right. <laughs> I think it could be a default in, in a distribution that you might've used, but it, se it seems like a smart default. What, what I yeah. have seen is that the space would be full right up to 100% when this happens. And there's and not even root can write anything because there's not even a single byte available yeah. to write to. Um, now, obviously, you should probably consider var log being on a different um, partition. I mean, I'm yes. just saying that could probably help that a lot because if an application goes out of control, and normally this app doesn't even write that many logs, but when it goes out of control, I mean, it's just going to be spitting text out like crazy. Um, it could really fill up a disk so fast. It's amazing. Um, I, I've ran some experience or some experiments sometimes just, just to see how fast I could fill up a disk. I think I, I, I was able to do it in seconds. So, um, yeah. Yeah, you, you have to be careful of that. And uh, this is why when you set up a more advanced systems, and that's why when you're installing Linux, one of the questions is everything in one partition for normal users, but for advanced users, you may want to start breaking everything on to a series amount points uh, to help distribute that because that way things can continue to work or you don't destroy something else by running out of space. You'll just not be able to log, which is bad, but yeah, at least things can keep moving forward. <laughs> Exactly. So the next section is going to be more about network and bandwidth. I'm going to mention one myself. I, I think Tom's going to be the star of the show here because I, I'm kind of lame when it comes to this. So I literally, if I have a problem, I'm, I have PFSense, I have all these different things, and I just open PFSense. I see the traffic graph going crazy. I know exactly where the problem is. Probably my kids playing online games. Let's be honest. That's usually what it's going to be. But I think having the command line tools are great because, you know, what if I'm not able to log into PFSense or I don't have anything like that I can use? Um, the one I'm going to mention real quick is it's an easy one, speed test hyphen CLI. And yep. that's a, a good way to just get a quick speed test if you want to see what your bandwidth, bandwidth is like. Don't even have to open up a web browser. And one of the reasons why I like this is that um, it's really useful to traverse your network. So if you have a problem where, let's just say, Bandwidth is just sucky. It's horrible. So you run a speed test and you're getting a minuscule amount of um, bandwidth there. Is it that server that's a problem or is it something ahead of it that's the bottleneck? So you can go like one level below that, run speed test. Okay, that's also slow. Go level below that, run it again. It's fast. Okay, so the problem is between the, the second and third server. Something there is really hogging the bandwidth. You could kind of traverse it that way. Obviously, a speed test is not going to give you an accurate um, to the byte representation of your speed. But it is going to be able to give you an idea of like where the bottleneck might be, or um, maybe your internet connection is just totally not getting um, what you're supposed to be getting. There's always going to be a variance there. So if you, you get a um, gigabit internet connection, you're probably not going to get the full gigabit all the time. Maybe it's 800 at one point, 950 the next, but it should be um, 800 or higher, I would hope. But if you're getting something like 40 and you're paying for a gigabit, well, that's a problem. 
Right. And on the topic of speed testing, one mm -hmm. of the other options is internally, this is a really important thing to do. Does your internal network have a bottleneck somewhere? And that's where I've used it in many videos. Uh, we have it listed as iPerf, but technically it'd be iPerf 3. Both are both work. There's two different ones. iPerf 3 is the newest one. Uh, and the command is different. So it's iPerf and then just the number three after it. But that command right there, iPerf 3, I've done videos on this. It's often used in all my speed test videos. It is a tool that allows you to create single streams and figure out if the data at what speed the data can travel your network from point A, system A to system B. Now, there's a lot of cool things you can do with this. And for example, when testing 10 gig routing on a PFSense, I had pointed out that people who have trouble figuring out why 10 gig isn't working on PFSense, well, there's a few factors. One, 10 gig has trouble with single streams. iPerf by the default with no parameters added to it, runs a single stream, a single TCP or UDP stream between the two devices. But you can also slice that up into 20 streams or two streams or five streams. You can throw some command line options on it. And you'll notice at that point, certain devices and PFSense is included in this when you're setting up 10 gig can actually handle even with lower processors, a 10 gig stream provided it's a multitude of streams, which is actually more relatable to how your internet connection would actually work. It's not like all your data is through a single stream when you're at that level. It's often a series of things. So you have a cumulative bandwidth, but this is where you can do all that type of testing with iPerf and understand your network. Because if, as Jay said, if you're not getting the right speed on your internet connection, you also do have to check internally just to make sure there's not something broke within your network, a switch causing a hangup. Um, or uh, I think Jay had discovered one uh, client that he was working with that had a old 100, 10, 100 switch oh, in between God. things. <laughs> yes, I, I was, I told the owner of the company, I, I told him, you know, I understand you want to fly me out there, but before you buy me a plane ticket, I, I think I should just kind of look at the um, equipment and just understand what the capabilities are. He's like, no, we have uh, gigabit everywhere. We're paying for gigabit internet. We have gigabit devices. It's absolutely perfect. Just go over there. It gives me a plane <laughs> ticket. And has the, I think it was Verizon or AT&T. I can't remember. Yeah. Meet me there. And I, so I get there and me and that individual walk down the stairs to the data center. And as soon as I see the data rack, I, I told the guy, you know what? I'm really sorry that we wasted your time. I guarantee you there's nothing you could do here. It's a hardware problem. He's like, okay. And then he walked away. Because when I, um, I looked at the rack, I, I looked at, you know, basically old switches that I would find on eBay for probably $15, $20 if I was going for CCNA um, testing. Old Cisco. I wanted, I wanted some example switches or routers to practice on that are just 10, 100. That's exactly what was in the rack. So I, I called him up. I'm like, yeah, like I told you, you probably should have had me look at this equipment first or get someone over here to give me the model numbers because you have um, actually most of his devices other than the PowerEdge servers were not capable of gigabit. So there's no way that, you know, gigabit internet connection is even going to work. So I basically set up, I, I redid everything, um, had them buy new switches, a PFSense device, um, everything needed to be replaced. Even the VPN server yeah. was uh, really old. And, and an iPerf just, test could have saved you a plane yeah. trip. <laughs> it could have, but then again, I'm like, okay, you know, if he wants to buy me a plane ticket, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'll go. I, I did warn them. So um, it was a funny situation. And, you know, that, that's right. kind of one of the things you run into. Now, you can, uh, I, back to the PF Sense real quick, the 
PFSense does have iPerf as a option that you can load mm -hmm. into it. Um, and yeah. you can also set up iPerf uh, as uh, use our Linode offer code and uh, spin up a server and run iPerf on there. You may not want to leave it open to the public for long because right. people may find it and poke at it and then just start sucking up bandwidth. But you can do this between uh, internet connected devices too. It doesn't have to be or restricted to. And it's just a testing tool. So, I mean, yeah. there may be some flaw in it. I don't know that I would leave it publicly exposed, but yes, you can publicly expose it. Use the Linode firewall to restrict it to the devices you want to test because yeah. that's probably just a better idea. Because by the way, yeah. when bandwidth in the cloud does cost money, but you can use this um, internal network outside the network or even spinning up your own servers and understand the interconnectivity of different things. But maybe you want to drill down deeper and we have a couple tools for that. One of them is IFTOP. Now IFTOP, much like HTOP or TOP, it's interface top. So it's uh, looking at your network interface and giving you the individual IP addresses and where that data is going back and forth. It's kind of a cool little display that you can do to just watch the connections go back and forth. It's not overly detailed, but it does give you bandwidth. And for example, when I open up on my computer and we test something, let's say the VPN tunnel, I can look at what's traversing the VPN tunnel, what IPs I'm connected to across my VPN tunnel, but this works on really any interface, including VPN tunnels. And then you can watch the bandwidth going back and forth and maybe do an iPerf test and use this at the same time to see the bandwidth going across, see how the connections are traversing. It's a, it's a pretty handy tool, but let's go deeper. And that's where we get to IP traf. IPTRAF-NG, next generation. I forget how old this tool is that it says next generation, but it's been around a long time. So I don't know when the first IP traf came out, but this is the next generation one. It's been around forever. Great system that allows you to drill into TCP and UDB connections on your system. Um, I believe it'll filter ICMP as well, but it actually is a all you know command line menu-driven menu system so you can really monitor all the connections. This is helpful when you wanna see what's connected to a server. If you wanna see if an IP address is connecting when you're doing some troubleshooting, you can go into the filter rules, drop some filter information in there. I'm trying to remember, I may or may not have done a video on this, kind of like Jay, occasionally you do a video and you're like, I can't remember yep. if I did, but it's a great, command line networking tool with a nice menu system that will dive into uh, understanding the different connections going to a system. It's it, it's something that I've used quite a bit for troubleshooting on Linux servers uh, when you're trying to just say, all right, what, what, what is talking to this device? And especially when it's a cloud server, like what is currently talking to it? You can make a list yep. of active talkers and it's, you know, apt get install. It's in most all the repositories of any, I know it's apt get on any Debian based uh, distribution, but it's in whatever, you know, Red Hat and everything else. It's pretty popular tool across a lot of distros. So those are all solid networking tools to help you uh, dive into that and kind of understand those connections. It's also fun just to play with. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about session management. And my personal pick is Tmux. I don't think Tom will disagree. In fact, nope. he and I both have videos on this. So yes. I have short codes for Tmux. My videos as a playlist is at linux.video slash Tmux. And then Tom's video is a similar short URL I've created, linux.video slash Tmux hyphen Tom, again, in the show notes. So Tmux at its core will allow you to keep a session alive, even if your FSH connection is dropped. Now, I recommend Tmux for every single person that uses Linux. It's not just because I like it. It's just because it can save you um, from damaging a server, believe it or not. So if you SSH into a server, let's just say you're installing a package and then your internet connection goes down. So at that point, 
your session dropped in the middle of a package install. That's not good. That's going to be, at its best, you're going to have to reinstall some packages. When that happens, it's even worse when you have like a very complicated deployment going on and you lose connection right in the middle of that. Tmux will allow that session to stay alive at the, at the target. You connect to it via SSH, but Tmux is running at the target and it stays alive, which is also why you can restart network interfaces through Tmux. And you'll still get disconnected, but you can reconnect to your session and it'll come back up like nothing ever happened. Now, more advanced usage, you you have things like tabs, you can have splits, so you can have like five different um, servers on one terminal window. You can send the same command to a bunch of servers at the same time. So if you're rolling out five servers and they're going to be identical, sure, you could use an image. That's probably the best way to do it, but you could also just sync the uh, terminals to fire off the same command in each one. So it can get pretty advanced, but it's super easy. So check out our videos. Um, I say watch both. Personally, I like to learn from multiple people. That's how I learn. So um, if I'm watching a YouTube video, I'll watch like two or three from two or three different people to learn it. So definitely do that. Um, now, I mentioned Mosh here as well. And what that allows you to do is automatically resume a session. So when you combine that with Tmux, that's that's where the magic happens. But Mosh, you don't need Tmux with that. So with Mosh, you can use Mosh instead of SSH. So if you have Mosh installed on both ends, you could do Mosh and then the IP address instead of SSH and the IP address. So let's just say, for example, you're on a laptop, you're at home, and you use Mosh to configure your home lab server. But then you have to go to work, so you bring your laptop to work. And then you come back, as soon as you're back on your Wi-Fi, it'll reconnect you to the server as if you weren't ever disconnected. You can continue right where you left off. Now, combined with Tmux, you really don't have to worry about your session going anywhere. It'll just resume it. Now, obviously, there's some ports you have to open here. So be careful what you open. I'm not saying you should open up Mosh to the world. In fact, you definitely should not. But just understand the ports that it uses and how the traffic works before you start rolling it out everywhere. With responsible usage, I think Mosh combined with Tmux is actually very powerful. Now, one of the cool things is, let's go back to the beginning here, and we talked about mm -hmm. having Vim, we talked about WaveMom, we talked about doing some speed tests with iPerf. This is where Tmux becomes really helpful because what you do, and this is one of the ways I've done the speed test videos when I'm doing Wi-Fi. First, I want to pull up WaveMon, but I don't want to make a full screen. So I'll open up Tmux, so I'll create some splits. I only, need a, I only need a really small amount, just a couple columns, small enough to run something like iPerf in. But then we'll have WaveMon on the other side running. And this is where all this kind of stacks together. So you, I can kick off the commands without flipping screens and watch what happens when you are trying to do a speed test while you're connected to a certain SSID. And at the same time you're roaming and then I record the screen and make a video with it. So this is kind of the stacking and glue that holds it all together is things like Tmux. Um, it's very helpful because maybe you want to watch a connection. So you open up IP traf uh, NG, you're opening that in a window, and then you have another little window below it where you're SSHing back and forth or bringing up a VPN tunnel and trying to traverse traffic, but you're trying to see if that traffic hits. This is why we, we mentioned Tmux last because it's, well, almost last. We got a couple more things to talk about, but it's really helpful once you kind of put all this knowledge together to be able to do everything in one. And that's why you, you get the insert joke hacker man <laughs> when you watch people yeah. using Linux terminal. It looks really complicated looking over my shoulder to watch what we're doing but it's just a small iteration on using a few of these tools, opening up something like Tmux, kicking off all of this stuff and learning it. it. It's all these iterative learning things that kind of bring you to that. Yep. I would even go as far as to say that a useful plugin for Tmux and 
Tmux does support plugins. Though I don't use many. The one I do use is uh, Tmuxinator. Um, I don't. It's not technically a plugin. It kind of is, kind of isn't. But Tmuxinator is something you can install. You could define a Tmux layout ahead of time. As far as like what servers it's connected to, what apps are running, you could literally just create a config that's something like Netmon. If, if, if you want to call it that, call it whatever you want. And then it just fires up Tmux with the right splits and the right tools already there. So it could have all your bandwidth monitoring tools, each and every single one of them that you use right in one shot, one command. You don't have to manually create anything. Um, the other plugin I like is Tmux Resurrect. So you can actually freeze your Tmux session. And then when you reboot the server, if you have to reboot it, then you can um, resurrect that Tmux session and it'll restore it the way it was before you rebooted, which is actually kind of cool. So yes. those are a few value adds that I wanted to throw in there. And next, um, Tom, and I believe this is you, if you want to talk about this one, Linus, for the security section. Yes. Now, we have not done a video on this, but I, uh, a lot of people really like this tool, L-Y-N-I-S. And it does sound very similar to the guy famous for Linux curl, Linus, um, but it's Linus. Well, I guess he pronounced it Linus. I don't know. We're not going to get over semantics here. Um, Linus is a auditing tool for hardening and compliance testing. Uh, If you search it up, it's pretty, it's a pretty neat tool. And eventually me or Jay, maybe one of us, I'm not sure who's going to do it first. We will in the future be doing a video on this. What it does is it just audits for a lot of common settings because there's a lot of settings you want to use to set up your computer and harden it. And we're all human. That means we skipped some settings, but Linus was written by a human to automate all of these. So it is the tool to go through and just say, all right, you've checked all the boxes. You've done these configurations. I, I wanted to give it a mention because it's kind of cool to kind of get a baseline. It's free, by the way, to start doing some of this. Um, they actually, the person that wrote it does offer some type of consulting services uh, that wrote it. So there's actually some, it's not a commercial product. It is an open source product and it is apt to get install uh, built in. But uh, I, I want to mention, because I've actually, we talked to him a long time ago, back when we did the Sunday morning Linux review, he emailed back and forth, super nice person. Um, but it's definitely a cool auditing tool to at least help understand. Yeah. Linus yep. tech tips. I think that's really funny that someone said that. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that's It'll hilarious. give you Linux tech tips. All right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's Linus doesn't give too many of those. So not, not so much. No. Um, I am going to bring up two apps at the same time and right. because they kind of solve the same purpose here. And that's having a terminal file manager. Now, yeah, I I know we don't need a file manager. We can just use all the uh, file management commands. Every now and then it's useful. Um, We have Midnight Commander and we have Ranger. Now, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure Ranger is written in Python and Midnight Commander, I don't remember what that's written in, but Midnight Commander is a little bit more advanced. Ranger is really easy. It's simpler, has fewer features, but it's just easier to get up and running with it. So if you want to use the terminal and traverse a file system like you would in a file manager. And there's other features as well. Midnight Commander and Ranger are both good picks. So if you want something easy, go with Ranger. If you want something, if you don't mind learning Midnight Commander, I would go that direction because it's, you know, there's more to do. There's more features and things like that. Um, just classic things that I think everyone should use at least once, even if it's not going to be in, in your muscle memory. And you might actually like those and uh, find yourself continuing to use them. So one is Ranger, and again, the other is Midnight Commander. So um, I definitely recommend that you guys check those out. FIO. This is a really handy little file system benchmarking tool. And I've used it in a few videos because, well, back to I do some storage server testing. Now, this is 
a tool that's also used by the Pharonix test suite, which is obviously much more extensive and much more in-depth way to do some testing. But if you just need to do some FIO testing, if you look up, there's a couple easy write-ups on a few common command line switches. But what I like about it is you can build a simple one line command, throw it in bash or just copy paste it in and say, run the speed test under these parameters to get a baseline IO. Then make whatever configuration changes you want, run that same test again and see if the results are different. It's a really basic tool that can give you a quick idea of the speed test of the ability when you're moving drive, uh, moving files around a drive. Because it's a question that comes up a lot, how fast is this drive? Especially when you're dealing with virtualization, because you've created, when you have an external storage server with virtualization, you have a lot of complexities. You have the hypervisor, you have the underlying connections it has to a storage server, whether that storage is local to it, or it is something like a true NAS or a Synology. And you're kind of going, well, what if I change this one parameter in the ZFS settings on true NAS? What are the results for this. And this is where you can just, it's kind of my quick and easy. It's not a thorough benchmark, but one of the things that can be done is it can be configured to the type of workload. Because ultimately when you do any type of benchmarking, it has to match what the workload is like a database with a lot of small writes, or you're just moving large video files, but you can tune when you learn the FIO system to say, move these big files, move four big files at once or a thousand small files or a thousand big files, whichever makes you happy. But you tune that parameter and then you then go back and start tuning your storage settings and you can just keep running it until you get the more optimal result. It's just kind of one of those easy things that not everybody knows about that, you know, how fast does this drive? And that's a loaded question, of course, how fast is it doing what task? But that's where FIO has been something I've used quite a bit to start understanding with the different parameters. Uh, I'm working on a much more in-depth video on that topic, but right now it's at like a two hour length of explaining some of that. I think I need Wendell to help me bring it down to <laughs> something like that. Tuning storage servers is, is an art form because it comes down to right. what, but either way, FIO is a great tool for uh, sending you down a rabbit hole you may not return from <laughs> when it comes to benchmarking drives and wondering what minor changes ripple out to big effect. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I think that reaches. Oh, SIP calc. Um, yep. This is something from the command line. It's kind of fun. SIP uh, calc 192.168.0 slash 24 slash 22 slash 23. I have at least one staff member that has everything committed to memory. Like he can subnet and tell you the different splits of everything and where the gateways always are. He does it in his head very, very well. I don't. Um, so it, it's handy to have something on a command line in case you wanted to know when someone goes, oh, it's a slash 29 or a slash if that is something you don't deal with every day. It may, I'm obviously I deal with it enough that I don't think about it much, but I know there are times when I, I may get stumped and I'm like, okay, this is handy to have on the command line when you're doing it. So uh, yep. SIPCALC will just do some calculations, tell you if it's a private address space or a public address space. In case you're new, it's it's a handy little thing. <laughs> I'm going to try that one out. I was using IPCALC, but I don't recommend it necessarily because depending on the distribution you're using, it's a completely different program unrelated on one distro versus another. So if I tell you to go install IPCALC, you're either going to love it or you'll get the other one. I, I can't remember what the other one does. Um, same name, different app. I think this is probably better. The one Tom mentioned because yeah. ZipCalc is ZipCalc. So they, they seem to do the same things, essentially. Uh, they display a little bit differently, so they're not like just the same app. But um, right. obviously, there's some name collisions, as Jay pointed out with the other one, so that can sometimes hamper things. Now, 
I think that's all we have for the tools. We do have an announcement. Oh, we have any, yeah, it's the bottom of the tools. Well, uh, I have one more that I do want to mention, though, actually, before we get to the announcement. Sure. This one's easy. Um, and this doesn't qualify as a command line tool because I was going to skip it. That's why we were thinking we were done. But yeah. I, I kind of went back on that because Memtest 86 is very, very important for yeah. every with a hardware device because, and, and this is kind of the reason, when you have memory issues on one operating system versus another, for example, let's just say you have a server that was running Windows Server, physical server, and it was totally fine. You got some error messages, but you know, it's Windows. So you just kind of cancel those out, you know, think about it. Then you go to install Linux on it and it just won't install or it does install and it just doesn't operate right. Linux does not handle memory issues very well at all. And a lot of times when I have someone switching from Windows to Linux, whether it be a laptop, a desktop, a server, doesn't matter, they'll um, come back and say, well, Windows was fine. Um, why doesn't Linux work? Well, you have bad RAM. And for some reason, the area of RAM, Windows is able to work around that. Um, maybe sometimes it doesn't, you'll get some error messages, but Linux just kind of throws up its hands. I recommend running Memtest 86 on all pieces of hardware that you acquire used. Again, whether it be a server, desktop, laptop, doesn't matter. I would even go as far as to say run it every year. Just, just make sure uh, you have no memory issues because you'd be surprised how many times I've had people complain about Linux just to find out they had a hardware problem, specifically with memory, which is a very common one that comes up, especially with used pieces of equipment. So yeah, Memtest 86 is not a command line utility. It's a, you know, kind of like a live ISO image you can write to a flash drive. Unfortunately, they've gone a little commercial so far. It's still free. It still works. They have some paid features now, which I never thought I'd see, but it is what it is. It works and I use it a lot. I highly recommend everyone do that when they have a used piece of equipment. So at least you know that you don't have memory issues. All right. That in very, that's important. Uh, running yeah. in hardware troubleshooting is uh, still a pain. Nothing you have to do in the cloud servers, though. You don't have to run MemTest in the cloud servers. That's their problem. So, yep, that's their problem. <laughs> plus one for the cloud servers. But all right. Now, the announcement we wanted to make we want to hear from you. That's the announcement. Yep. Uh, I threw a link that's in the live chat here. And if you're listening to the podcast, it's going to be in the show notes and it'll be live on the website. Uh, we are doing a feedback form. We want to hear back from you. We would love suggestions, comments, questions, concerns, or just say hello. Uh, we're putting this together. And one of our goals is going to be to do just a Q&A episode. So yep. if there's enough questions in there, we will summarize all these up. And of course, we'll be joined by the live people here. Which, By the way, thank you. There's 150 of you here right now, just about. Um, so awesome that there's that many of you here, but we'll do some Q&A sessions. That'll be a future planned uh, one we'll do. We want to answer the questions. We'll go through them and make sure we're covering the things you want to know about building your home lab and getting started. And there's so many questions. And I know some of them may have scrolled by when we do these live streams. We do as much as we can to answer. And thank you to all the community members that are here that do answer a lot of the questions for people that are asking while me and Jay are talking about awesome Linux tools. Yep. And for those of you in the live stream, if you're getting a permissions error, we will have it fixed. Just bookmark that link, try it later today, and yep. um, you'll be fine. Yeah. Okay. Yep. We didn't do testing before. We, Me and Jay tested, and I realized I gave him permission. So there will be a permission uh, fix that will be happening as soon as we're done with this. <laughs> yeah, but it'll be on the website. So for those of you that are downloading this podcast and are not listening live, you'll This problem has been right solved now. by the time you hear it. <laughs> so everyone that is listening live, check back later. It'll work. 
Yep. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you everyone for telling me I have a branch problem. This is why we, you know, doing things live can be so much more fun than, you know, doing it in post. Uh, Cause we're going to fix it in real time. We heard you and I'm going to go click fixing that link right now. So, all right. Yep. Thanks again, everyone. And links will be in the show notes. Uh, see you next week. Thank you.